Lake uh, this last weekend. We were fasting and praying, and uh, it was so amazing what God does when his people seek his face. And we, we got away for a little bit and uh, just sought the Lord and, and, and prayed together. And, and, and just one of the things that really came out more than once was God's desire to breathe his life into us again, breathe his life into places that have fallen asleep, breathe his life into places that are wounded, breathe his life into places that even seem dead, breathe us to a place of awakening, not just awake, but alive and moving around and active. We could be sleepwalking through life, just going through it, just going through the motions, just going through the habits, but God wants you alive and today, if you need a fresh breath of God, you need, that, you need that life. He's always able. He's always willing. You know, sometimes we study revivals through history, and we just assume that God is just at some point making up his mind, today I'm going to do something amazing. But that's not the way God works. When he promised that whoever should call on the name of the Lord would be saved, call upon me and I will answer you and I'll show you great and mighty things you don't know. That if you would ask, he would send the spirit. That if you would ask, he'd fill you up. God is not waiting for the right moment. He's not waiting just for his, his, his you know, emotions to get in the right place. God has always been a God of promises, a God of covenant. And he's waiting for his people to seek him in spirit and in truth. And some of you have already begun that. Some of you are in that right now. And I believe if we seek him, we'll find him. We've already, yeah, you found God. Yeah, he's here. Yeah, you're filled with his spirit. But I always want more. And I hope that you do too. Amen? Amen. I was thinking the other day about the last words of the Old Testament. The book of Malachi is interesting because it's setting up two different events. Well, maybe three, because it's setting them up immediately. He's telling them, you haven't honored me. Here's how you return the honor. Here's how you get back to a place of honoring God where your hearts are right. Then he talks about this great day of the Lord. He talks about the day when the Lord comes in his kingdom and all of his power. That day that we're still approaching where he sets up his kingdom on the planet. But he also talks about a day when the Messiah would come. And there'd be another kingdom set up, a kingdom, the kingdom of heaven among men. And yeah, he's not on the earth ruling yet. That's coming. But he is ruling and reigning in us and through us. There is a kingdom we can't see. That's the kingdom of God. And so he, he talks about not only the, the end of the world, not only does he talk about this great and mighty day of the Lord, but he also talks about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Savior. And he also talks about the guy that came before when Malachi says this, in fact, we'll read it. He says these words, and these are the words that ring out as the last words in the Old Testament before the coming of Jesus. These are the words left hanging in the air. These are the words that everybody's left with. And God didn't leave them alone. I've heard some people preach that the, there were this many, there hundreds of years of silence and Jesus broke the silence and it's a beautiful poetic thought. But the truth is God was still speaking to people. God was still leading people. There wasn't scripture in between then, but God was still speaking. 
Now, there might not have been the major prophets like there were in other places. There might not have been that, that, that word that we, we get to look back and, and, and write down. But come on, even think about it. God spoke to Zechariah before Jesus was born, didn't he? Zechariah, sorry. God spoke to Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, before Jesus was born. So that's just that alone. God spoke to Mary. We know that there wasn't just silence until Jesus was born. God was still speaking. But these are the prophetic words that are hanging over the the nation of Israel, just hanging there for centuries before the Messiah comes. There are some people that are expecting the Messiah to come, and there's some people that have given up. But here are the words that, said, that, that he leaves us with. Malachi 4 is sometimes difficult to understand because he's both talking about the great and mighty day of the Lord where, where you know, it's the end of the world. The judgment is coming. But he also refers to the coming of the Messiah. Malachi 4, he says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace. All the arrogant and evil, every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Well, that's a happy verse to put on your refrigerator, isn't it? <laughs> but for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise. Here he's talking about Jesus. The Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. We got some ranchers amongst us today. You know what that's talking about. You've seen those calves skip out of the stall. You've seen those calves jump around like they've got not a care in the world. He says, that's how you're going to feel when the son of righteousness comes. That's how you're going to feel when the Messiah comes. You're going to feel like newborn calves just happy to be alive, skipping about like calves from the stall. It's weird. Two verses that very, <laughs> are very different. Verse 1, he's talking about people like burning up and nothing's left. And verse 2, he's comparing you to happy little calves bouncing around. The son of righteousness will rise. I love that picture. The son of righteousness. And here he's not saying S-O-N, son, as in father, son. He's talking about son, S-U-N, like the sun in the sky. The son of righteousness. Why? Because Jesus was the light of the world. And in him, we are the light of the world, right? So the sun of righteousness rises, healing in its wings. And he says, you'll go forth and you'll skip about like calves from the stall. Anybody felt like that recently? Because if you haven't, you should. If you haven't, go back and rediscover the joy of your salvation. Anyways, that's not the sermon today. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet for the day which I'm preparing. Once again, he's talking there about the, the very end. But here he says, remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. These are the words he's leaving the Israelites with. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. We learn from the New Testament that this verse right here is referring to a man named John the Baptist. John the Baptist, when the angel spoke to him, spoke to his father, before he was ever born, the angel quoted this verse and says, your son's going to be this guy. And the angel quotes it a little bit different. The angel says that he'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and then he says, "And and the hearts of the disobedient to the righteous. 
Later, after John the Baptist was already had really played his part, Jesus says, I say to you, if you can believe it, John the Baptist was, was the spirit of Elijah. He came in the spirit of Elijah. That doesn't mean that Elijah came and possessed John the Baptist. No, no, no. That just means that the same spirit and purpose that God put on Elijah, God put on John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist was the fulfillment of this. Now, who was John the Baptist preparing the way for? Jesus, right? What did John the Baptist, John the Baptist is a crazy guy. You see, his dad was really old. His mom was really old when he was born. His mom couldn't have kids. How many times in the Bible do we see that story of a woman that can't have children and God gives them a miracle child? God loves to do it that way. Anyways, his mom couldn't have kids. And so for years, Zacharias and, his, and Elizabeth, they, they didn't have any children until they got really old. Zechariah is it's his turn to, ser- turn to serve in the temple. He's, a, he's of the priesthood. And it's his turn to serve in the temple. And the angel appears to him and he tells him, this is what your son's going to do. This is who your son's going to be. And at first, Zechariah doesn't believe him. He just says, how can that be? I'm too old. My wife's too old. He says, that can't happen. The angel says, it will happen. But you know what? I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to shut your mouth. <laughs> You're saying all the wrong stuff. You're not going to be able to talk till your son's born. When his son was born, the angel had told him, you name, name your son John. And when his son was born, uh, there was tradition in their family that, uh, well, not tradition in their family, tradition in their culture, that you always name your kids after somebody in your family line. So Elizabeth says to everybody, when the baby's born, his name's John. And they all say, nah, his name can't be John. There's no John in, the, in, the, in your family. There's no John in your, in your family history. It's got to be a different name. It says that they made gestures to John's dad, which I think is hilarious because all that God did was make it so he couldn't talk, <laughs> but they're acting like he can't hear. Can you imagine nine months of people treating you like you're deaf and all you get, you just can't talk? You want to tell them, I can, t- I can hear, but... You- you know, I don't know why he never just wrote it down. Maybe he did, and they still were like, nah. So they're gesturing to him. I don't know. How do you gesture what's his name going to be? I don't know what the gesture for that is. First word. Second. They gestured him. What's his name? Zechariah gets a tablet, and he's like, I'm through with you guys. Gets a tablet and says, his name is John. Gives it to them. And the minute he writes that down, his mouth is open. The first words that he says aren't, I can talk. The first words that he says, God supernaturally causes him to prophesy. And he prophesies about his son. And he prophesies that his son will be the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That his son would be exactly what Malachi said his son was going to be. Exactly what the angel said his son was going to be. He says, and he will be, he will prepare the way for the Lord. He will prepare the way for the Most High. And then he talks about that Most High. He says, the people that sat in a great darkness will see a great light. Because the sun from, most, from the Most High will shine on them. And us who sit in the valley in the shadow of death, we're going to see a light. It's a powerful moment. The scripture says that John grew up in the wilderness. And I've often thought about why that was. 
I know his parents didn't live in the wilderness. But if you think about the fact that they were very old when they had him, they probably died when he was young. I don't know how young. But it says when he was a boy, he went out into the wilderness and grew up there. So here's just my opinion. Can you accept my opinion and not treat it like Scripture? It's just Jonathan's opinion, okay? When we read the Scripture, that's God talking. When it's me, it's just it's, it's Jonathan's opinion, okay? So you can, you can say, I disagree with him, and we can still be friends, and we can share. Um, well, we're not going to share a hot dog, but we'll stand next to each other eating a hot dog <laughs> and not be in strife. So... My, my thought about this is, because the scripture says that when he was a boy, he grew up in the wilderness. My thought is, his parents probably died when he was young. They were already really old. They probably died when he was young. And what's the thing he remembers, his dad telling him, when he's first born and his dad told him over and over again, you're going to be the voice crying in the wilderness. So what does he do? Parents die, what do you do? You go to the wilderness. The Bible says he grew up there. You know, wilderness can be a lot of different terrains and a lot of different layouts, but basically what it means in biblical terms is wilderness is where there isn't anybody else. So there's a guy that's supposed to be a preacher. Now, I know we all want the preachers that preached us to be cool and funny. I'm not sure what you got, but I know that's what you were hoping for. You want, you want somebody that you don't mind listening to how about a really antisocial person that grew out in the middle of nowhere? Like super homeschooled. <laughs> no comment, no comment. Because <laughs> none of you were super homeschooled. I'm talking about no contact. <laughs> Says that he wore his own, he wore animal skins. Now, you say we all wear animal skins, leather jackets. No, this guy is not a professional clothes guy. He grew up in the wilderness. He killed something. He made it work, you know, and he tied it around. <laughs> He's got animal furs that probably still smell. He didn't tan them right. It says he eats locusts and honey. Locusts. Locusts and honey are his favorite little delectable treat. This is what he grows up on. And all of a sudden, he comes back to Galilee preaching. Big beard, smelly fur, wild matted hair, snacking on some grasshoppers. And here he says, repent! You can imagine, if that guy showed up today, we'd be like, no way. No, I'm going to the church where the, I'm, going, I'm going where the cool people are. No, but God put him there to prepare the way of the Lord. And he didn't care what people thought of him. That's why he died. Because he got invited to dinner with the king. You know, when you get invited to dinner with the king, you eat with the right fork and the right knife, and you, you make polite conversation. John stands up and says, you're sleeping with your brother's wife. Which totally puts a, just deadens the dinner party, no matter what's happening. <laughs> Just like destroys whatever small talk you had going. <laughs> so Herod is, is, is one of those guys that's very, has a very domineering wife. And uh, she insists that he's put in prison. Later she insists that, that Herod gives him, for, for his, his own birthday, his birthday present was 
that his wife said, you give me John's head. Well, actually, his wife made her daughter tell him, the gift you give me because I did such a great dance. It's a messed up family. What, what, <laughs> give me John's head on a platter. So John got his head chopped off because he, he was just so bold and, and, and wasn't backing down. But before all that, when he was preparing the way for Jesus, he comes and he says, repent, turn back. And he begins to say what the prophet said he would say. He begins to repeat what the prophets have said for a long time that, that, that this man in the spirit of Elijah would do. And he comes and he says, prepare a way for the Lord. Make straight paths in your heart. Isn't it interesting? We think Jesus came and fixed everybody. But the truth was there had to be even a way prepared for Jesus. Hearts had to be made ready. We don't see it quoted in the, in the Gospels, but we, we see it in the prophecy about him. We see it when the angel talked about him. That one of the things he was going to do was turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the children back to their fathers. That that was one of the things that needed to happen for a way for the Lord to be prepared. Isn't that an amazing thought? Now, I understand. Some of you might say, well, gosh, like I mean, like we said earlier, you might say, I don't know my dad. I, I, how am I supposed to do that? My dad's a big jerk. How am I supposed to do that? First of all, if your dad's on the planet, we honor our father. Doesn't mean you have to listen to everything they say. If you're an adult, you make your own choices, but you honor your father. See, giving honor is not because that person deserves it. Giving honor is not even for them, it's for you. We honor because we're honorable people. Honorable people aren't the ones that deserve honor. honor the pe honorable people are the ones that give honor where it's due. You know, Peter says, honor the emperor. We've talked about this before. He says, honor the emperor when the emperor is the worst guy on the planet. So we honor even the people we don't think deserve honor because God put honor in our hearts. But maybe you don't know your dad. You say, well, how does this verse apply to me? Well, it doesn't just apply to just family relationships. See, when, when we live in a culture where everybody goes their own way and we're just so strong on being individuals that we, we just want to do our own thing and we want to you know, make our own path, sometimes we forget that God has placed us in a family. Sometimes we forget that he has a way that's higher than ours. And one of the things he was going to do and one of the things he's done through the moving of his spirit is to return the hearts of this generation to the hearts of this generation and this generation to the hearts of that generation. You go to a lot of churches, even this year, even today, and that's an old church, that's a young church. That's a cool church, that's a not-so-cool church. But I believe when the Spirit of God moves in power, it doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are, God brings us together and there's honor for the members of the body. There's honor for the fathers. There's honor for the mothers. There's honor for those that are younger, even though they don't know as much as you, even though you may think they're not as wise. There's honor for who God made them to be. God is returning us to this place that if the Lord is going to have his way in us, there must be honor going both directions. And these children, it says the fathers will once again have their hearts turned towards that next generation. Their fathers will no longer be just looking out for themselves. Their fathers will no longer be given up or exasperated, but their hearts are going to be turned to the younger. Even men and women 
that don't have kids, God can place you in a position where you're a father, where you're a mother to somebody. Doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that, you know, they have to call you on Father's Day and Mother's Day, but it means that you're in a position where you're pouring into their life because you've learned something. It means that this next generation that comes along, even though they think they've got it all figured out and they've got a new way and they've got a better way, that they would turn their hearts back. And it doesn't mean that we always have to do things the old way. You know, time only moves in one direction. Not the band. Time only moves forward. So things will always get newer, right? You can't stay in the same place. Things change. Decor changes. Music changes. All these things change. But he remains the same. And so, you know, it doesn't mean that the kids are going to say, okay, we're going we're gonna to go sing Hank, Hank Williams songs until you know, the cows come home because that's what dad wants. No, it, it means that their hearts would be turned back because for so long we've been taught that you've got to make your own way. You've got to rebel. You've got to do your own thing. Maybe you've seen bumper stickers that say things like, quick, hire a teenager while he knows everything. You've got a brief window of time. Don't lose it. They're going to get humble in a few years. You don't want that? There's this, even, even when you watch commercials, even when you see launches of products, you know, 18 to 34, you're the target market. You're what they're looking for. They're not marketing to this group. They're marketing to you. I mean, unless they're marketing some sort of medication. Most of the time, they're, they're marketing to you. They want to be cool. Coca-Cola. They're marketing to you. Apple, they're marketing to you. So what, is this gener- what do the young generation think? They think they're it. They're hot stuff. We're the target market. Of course, that goes away. And you're either stuck in the past or you realize I'm not the target market anymore. Right, Chance? I mean, that's tough. (laughs) Sorry. I just had to. Birthday boy over there. (laughs) I honor you. (laughs) The Bible says, honor the gray hair. I owe Chance an extra burger after this. All right. (laughs) See, what I'm preaching about is actually against what I'm doing right now. (laughs) Because the Lord is returning to us a place where we honor and where we come to a place where we realize we need the young. They need the old, and the old, they need the young. I know that sounds cliche, but it's not the way our culture's going. There's a great divide. With every culture, that, with every generation, there's a revolution. And sometimes revolution has to happen. But I believe in the Spirit of God. What we see in the book of Acts is that the older guys were humble enough and spirit-led enough that when God was doing a new thing, they were some of the first to recognize it. And the younger guys, when they had a revelation from God, they didn't run with it till they'd run it past the older guys. That doesn't work if the older guys are stuck in their ways. Because you just get shot down every time. It also doesn't work if the younger guys think they're right all the time. So there was honor in the church. Even Paul, 
when he spent years getting this revelation from God, and it was a revelation from Jesus Christ himself. He says, I went and I submitted it to the apostles, lest I ran in vain. What kind of humility does that take? This man knew he heard from God, but he knew if God was going to do something, he's going to tell it to those guys too. There was enough of a relationship that when one of those elders in the faith went back to the old ways, when Peter, you know, who had a great revelation of, of, of Jesus being for the Jew and the Gentile alike, when Peter started to get intimidated by peer pressure and go back to not eating with the Gentiles, just eating with Jewish folks, there was enough of a relationship that Paul could come up to him and correct him to his face, and Peter received it. Now, there's got to be a lot of honor for that to work. God is restoring honor to the church. He's restoring honor to our hearts. Because without honor, remember when they didn't honor Jesus, when there was no honor for him, he said a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. What hometown was he talking about? His, the very place that he saw no miracles except for a few little ones. And it wasn't because he didn't want to, but because they didn't believe. Because the honor kept them, kept, I mean, it stopped their faith. It squished their faith. There was no miracles because there was no honor. And we say we want the presence of God. We say we want the spirit of God. But can I submit to you that for the, for the way of the Lord to be prepared, there must be a rest restoration of honor amongst the old and amongst the young. Because as long as we got heads budding, as long as we think we know it all, nobody will see everything that God's got for us. God's restoring it. God's restoring. God can do this, guys. Those of you that have broken families, maybe you're estranged from your parents, or maybe your kids don't want to have anything to do with you. God can restore things that psychiatrists can't restore. God can restore things that Oprah could never tell you how to fix. God can restore things that you couldn't buy a book to tell you how to fix it. But the presence of God and the breath of God can breathe life into dead things. Amen. And if we want to see God, if we want to experience him in a very real way, prepare your hearts. Let him prepare your hearts. Because what he wants to do is he wants to take your heart's fathers and turn them back to the children. Think about what that means. That your hearts would be turned towards children. Doesn't mean, you know, you're all of a sudden, okay, honey, we're going to have another kid. No, but it means that all of a sudden, your heart is for that younger generation. You, you're not just trying to make it on your own. You're not just worried about your own self. But you're all of a sudden pouring into somebody that needs you. And you care about them. It's interesting, the role of fathers. And I'll, I've, I've said it so many times today, but I'll say it again. If you didn't have a father, I, God is filling this in different ways, but he's filling that role in your life. If you'll let him. He'll fill it with himself, and he'll fill it with other people. But hear this, fathers, those of you that are dads today. The scripture puts such a, an importance on fathers and mothers. And fathers, it, it, it says one thing that stuck with me. It says, fathers, and it says this in Colossians 3, don't exasperate your children so that they will lose heart. Don't exasperate them so that they will lose heart. How do you exasperate your kids? You know, those fathers, a lot of times they know a lot more than the kids, even though the kids think they know everything. But it's so easy for a father, every time your child does something wrong, just to quickly clamp down on them. 
and just to quickly say, no, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong. Bible says that's exasperating. It's provoking them to anger. It's, it's, it, and in the end, what it's doing is it's squashing their heart. It says that you, I mean, you have a place in their life where you can cause them to lose heart or you can cause them to gain heart. What does it mean to gain heart? The Bible calls that, and even our English language calls that courage. Even our English word courage comes from the Latin word cor or the French word cor, which means heart. Courage just means to have heart. The father's place is to restore courage in his kids. Even when they're doing something wrong, the Bible says you raise them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. What's the root word of discipline, guys? Disciple. Disciple. When we hear discipline, maybe some of you just think spanking. Maybe some of you just think grounding. But the scripture calls discipline something way more than that. Discipline is discipling. And if you want to know how to disciple somebody, you just look at Jesus. How did he treat his disciples? Sometimes he corrected them. Sometimes they did get in trouble. But they always knew they were loved. And he was always pushing them. Not bad pushing, good pushing. You notice what he does? First year he's with them, he walks around, they get to see him do miracles. But then after this, you see him start sending them out on their own little trips. Letting them try, their, try out their feet. Letting them see how they do on their own. Letting them see that, that he's given them something, that they've got something to run with. And God is restoring the hearts of the fathers back to their children where they realize it's not the teacher's job to disciple my kids. It's not even church people's job to disciple my kids. I mean, they have a, your kids have a pastor just like you have a pastor. But in your home, mom, dad, you guys are the ones that are discipling those, those kids. Ultimately, you've got more authority than I've got in those kids' life. And that's the way it should be. I don't want your kids, you know, listening to me and disobeying you. I mean, if you're out, <laughs> if you're out smoking weed and you say, hey, kid, want to have a joint? And your kid comes to me and says, what should I do? Yeah, I want them to listen to me and not to you. But I'm talking about a godly parent. Ultimately, you're the, you're the big authority in their life. And that's the way it should be. The only bigger authority than you is the authority of Jesus. So we teach them to listen to his voice and to follow his word. Then it says, I will restore the hearts of the children to the fathers. Can you imagine a generation of young people that look and say, we realize we don't have it all. And we're going to have to run places that you haven't run. But we know that you know some things from where you've gone that we don't know. I realized something when my dad went on to be with Jesus. We're coming upon nine, nine years, almost to the day this week. And I remember there's a lot of pressure to be just like your dad. Fill his shoes. But I knew what my dad would want. It's not what everybody might think. I know a good father always says, I want you to go further than I went. The only way to really truly honor my father is to go further than he went. Sometimes we think, no, no, that's, that's dishonoring. I, I mean, I should, I should do exactly what they did. Any good father doesn't want you to do exactly what they did. They want you to go further. Those children of Israel that left Egypt, they had some things that were still stuck in their brains from Egypt, and they couldn't go into the promised land. But I'm telling you, what they wanted was that their kids would go in, and their kids did go in. That's how their kids, Joshua, 
was so honoring to Moses. Everywhere that Moses went, Joshua went. When Moses went into the tent to be with God, Joshua went. He stayed longer. When Moses went to the top of the mountain, Joshua stayed at the middle of the mountain waiting for him. Joshua never said, it's my turn, old man. (laughs) By the time he went into the promised land, he was the old man. Can you imagine waiting like 80 years for your turn? Your shot? 80 years serving another guy? Being the right-hand guy? And 80 years old, you finally get your shot? His buddy, Caleb, Joshua and Caleb, the only two from that generation, from that Egypt generation that went into the promised land. His buddy, Caleb, when they've conquered all of Canaan except for a few places, Caleb, the old man, 80-something years old, looks up at the top of the mountain, and he says, there's still giants up there. Normally, that sentence is followed by, we should stay over here. There's giants up there. Let's set up some walls around this mountain. But Caleb goes, there's still giants up there. Hey, boys, let's go get them. (laughs) Caleb makes his buddy Joshua. He says, promise me you'll give me that mountain where there's still giants. Because I want that one. See, he was an old man who had enough courage, enough faith, that his sons, his nephews, his grandkids were ready to follow him. See, that's what we're looking for. I say we, because I'm trying to sneak in there still, pretend I'm youngish. So when we, we talk about young, I'm going to still say we, because I'm still in the target market. <laughs> Just barely, hanging on by my fingernails, but I'm there. But that's what I always wanted growing up. You know, people think that, you know, well, you know, these young folks, they don't listen to the old folks anymore. I did. But you know what I wanted? I didn't want somebody who was 55 years old who dressed like a 17-year-old. Nothing makes me run faster than that. (laughs) And believe me, it exists. I don't want that. I want you to be you. I I wanted these fathers in my life. I wanted these mothers in my life. I wanted them to be themselves, but I wanted them to be courageous. I wanted them to be brave. I wanted them to be wise. I wanted them to be full of faith. I wanted them to be the first ones to say, give me the mountain. That's what I wanted, and I'd follow them to the edge of the mountain. I'd follow them all the way up. This is what Caleb did, but Joshua served Moses all those years. And when Moses says, you're going into the promised land, you're going to lead the people Joshua honored Moses by not staying where Moses was, but by going further where Moses never could go because that's where Moses wanted him to go. He honored Moses by going further, by taking the children of Israel into the next place. So every father wants that for your kids. I want to read something for 1 John, if we could. This is a work of God that's not just happening in families, but it's happening in the church is that the Lord is restoring unity to the body of Christ. He's restoring honor to the church and is restoring the generations together again because we are one generation. We might be made of different generations as the world sees it, but we are alive at the same time. We are the body at the same time. And the scripture specifically says, one part of the body can't say to the other part of the body, I don't need you. 1 John says this, In verse, chapter 2, in verse 12, 
says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers. Now here, he's not talking about fathers and families. He's talking about that older generation. I'm talking to you, those who've been around for a while. I'm writing to you because you know him who's been from the beginning. This is one of the things that that, those elders have that, that we need. They've known him. They've seen his faithfulness. Year after year, they've known him. I'm writing to you because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I've written to you, children, because you know the Father. I've written to you, father, written to you fathers, because you know him who's been from the beginning. He repeats himself. Apparently, it's important. I've written to you, young men. Now, come on. We're, we're talking about males here. But don't you think this applies to male and female? Really, guys? I mean, you know, just making sure. Some of you are just like, eh. I believe it does. Especially in the style of writing at the day, a lot of times you would use the, the masculine um, as a gender neutral term. I mean, I, I don't believe that, that this letter was just written to, to men and no women. Specifically, in the next couple letters he writes, he mentions the women. So he's talking to all of us here. He's saying, but I'm writing to the older generation, the ones that have been around for a while, because you've known him who's from the beginning. You know some things through experience. And he says, young men, you're strong. And the word of God abides in you. You've overcome the evil one. You see why you need both? See, you've got this older generation that knows the Father. They've been through stuff. They've seen stuff. They've seen the cycles. They know it. Then you've got this younger generation. They've got the energy. They've got the zeal. They've got the strength to go up and do it. When those two are together, nothing can stop them. Don't you find it interesting? This, he says all of this, and then he doesn't write a separate letter for everybody. He doesn't write like a kid's version. He doesn't write a youth version. He doesn't write seniors edition. It's the same letter written to everybody. Fathers, children, young ones. I'm writing to you all in the same letter, but I'm writing to you for different reasons. Here's why you need each other. God is restoring hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, and we need to let that happen. You need to let it happen. When John preached, prepare the way of the Lord, what did he say? Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths in your heart. John didn't say, I'm going to make a straight path in your heart. John didn't say, God is going to force a straight path in your heart. He says, you make straight paths in your heart. And old brutal John, when the Pharisees came, because it suddenly became the cool thing to do to go to crazy John and get baptized. The Pharisees show up, the religious leaders show up, just so they can be seen because it's become the popular thing and now you got to be there. And John looks at him and says, who warned you? You bunch of snakes, who warned you about the judgment which is to come? He says, if you say you've repented, bear fruits in accordance with repentance. You can't say you've repented. What does repent mean? In the literal Greek, repent means to change your mind to turn. Turn from one way to another way. To think differently, to live differently. You can't say you've repented and life remains the same. It says, if you've repented, bear fruits. 
You prepare ways. You prepare a straight path in your heart for the Lord to walk. So I want to tell you what's going to restore our hearts and straight paths in our hearts is that God would turn our hearts. If you're, if you're, if you're older, God would turn your hearts back to the children. If you're younger, God would turn your hearts back to the older. And God would restore honor in his church. And I believe that's what he wants. Now, if your kids have grown up, turned away, gone a, a totally wrong direction, you say, I did everything I could, or maybe I, I wish I had known then what I know now, what you can't do through nagging, what you can't do through harping, what you can't do through passive-aggressively hinting, God can do by the moving of his spirit. I want you to trust God that God can return the hearts of your kids back to you. But the only way that's going to happen is if you let him turn your heart. See, so you know the problem with this, the reason it hasn't worked so many times in the past because it's, it's always, you know, when, when, when somebody gets a hold of this scripture, they get a hold of it for the, for the, the one that's not applying to them. Those youngins better start listening to us. Like, <laughs> I was speaking at, the, uh, at a reserve, and it was, um, it was like suicide prevention, drug prevention. And they'd asked me to speak, and, and uh, one of the, they had asked one of the elders of the, the tribe to come and speak as well. And I knew him well. I knew, this guy's name's Frank. I knew him. And he's a good guy. But <laughs> you could tell he was just annoyed. So here I am. I got to speak to these guys. I want to tell them, you know, about the love of God. Frank gets up there. He's just ticked. He just goes, you guys never listen. Says, I'm not angry. Then he goes, I am angry with you. If I could come and hit you right now, I'd fight you all, you know, and it's like. <laughs> now, he's, he's a friendly guy. It didn't take long before he got back to ha his happy place and thank God for it. But there was this frustration. What's wrong? You'll never listen. Sometimes people feel that way. Oh, I got to listen to us older fuck that punk kids. Are like, Get off my lawn, you know. <laughs> But when we hear the word of God, when we hear the call to repent, the first thing you always got to hear is God speaking to your heart, not somebody else's. Because if God can't turn to your heart, don't expect he's going to turn somebody else's heart. I mean, he, what he does with them is his business, but first he must turn your heart. And sometimes this is one way for a while. Sometimes it's one way for a while and you feel like you just want to give up. Sometimes you turn your heart back to them and they still act like punks. They still reject you. So you obey the Lord. Doesn't matter how they treat you back, you obey the Lord. Maybe you're young and they still act like they know it all and they, and, and, and they, never, they never think you know anything and, and you're frustrated. So you honor them because the Lord told you to and you trust him to make up the difference. You know, the scripture says in Peter, it says, young men, don't get so eager to push those guys out of the way. It says, you be faithful, and the Lord will exalt you in due time. He'll lift you up at the right time. You be faithful, you serve, you submit yourself, and God will lift you up when he wants to lift yourself. You don't have to push your way in. You don't have to kick doors in. You let God exalt you. Humble yourself. And God will exalt you. What does humble mean? 
To humble yourself means to bring yourself low. Put someone else before you. Treat other people better than you treat yourself. Treat yourself good, but treat other people like they're more important than you. And it says, and God will lift you up. So here's the thing that would restore so much to us if we would really trust God to lift us up. We've been taught that you got to fight for your place. And in order to get to the top, you got to step on somebody else's head. So if you're young, you got to get on top of somebody older. It, their time is done. Get out of the way, old man. And if you're old, you got to fight those young punks. Who are gonna, they're after your job. They're after, you know, you know. And so we have this, this training in us that we got to stay at the top. But if we would humble ourselves, God will lift you up to where you're supposed to be. And in the body, there's nobody at the top. There's nobody at the bottom. We work together. My prayer today is that if you're here as a father or a mother, your kids have run, run the other way, that God would restore not only your hearts, that you would, you would feel something for them. You would, something when you pray for them, there'd be a gratitude, a thanksgiving, a hope that you haven't felt in a long time. Your hearts would turn back to them. Maybe you say, my heart is already for them. I think about them every day. Yeah, but what if God were to take hold of your heart and fill it with hope again? What if God were to take hold of your heart and fill it with joy again? Then, for those that have, that God would turn their hearts back to you. And for you young, if you don't know your dad, if you don't know your your biological father, you know, maybe you don't have anybody that's filling that role in your life. God will fill that. He is the father to the fatherless. You know, I read, I've read through the whole Old and New Testament. He talks about the father to the fatherless so many times. He has a special place in his heart for those that don't have a dad that's sticking up for him, that don't, doesn't have a dad that's believing in him. He is the one that fills those cracks. And he, not only that, but he's going to put people in your life that will fill that role. That's exactly what he did for me. He put people right in my life that filled what I needed at the time. Trust God. Trust God. God is restoring hearts again. And I believe he's restoring it even in us. But before you pray for someone else's heart to be restored to you, allow your heart to be restored to them. I got to think, if he's turning hearts, there had to be a reason they were turned the other way. And sometimes you think those are pretty good reasons. Sometimes you've been wronged. Sometimes you've been hurt. And those hurts, they feel like when we get hurt and we get poked, the first thing we do is we get callous. We build those walls because it doesn't, it's not going to hurt anymore. If I build walls and I protect myself, I won't hurt so much. But the problem is the same walls that keep out the hurt keep out the love. And they isolate you and they separate you. But if you trust God to be the shepherd and the guardian of your soul, if you trust him to guard your heart, if you would trust him to shepherd your heart, to keep your heart, then you can let those walls down and be open. And you can let those hurts go. And you can let those offenses go. And you can let those broken places be healed and cracks be filled in and a way to be prepared for the Lord. One of the things that John the Baptist was going to do was he was going to bring the high places down. It says the mountains will be leveled and the valleys will be lifted up and a way will be prepared for the Lord. Well, the mountains being leveled, that's obvious. That was the proud getting knocked down a peg so that they could 
except Jesus. But what about the valleys being brought up? What about the valleys being filled? What about those broken places, those valleys, those low places, the people that were in those low places that had to be brought up to a place where they could believe that somebody could come for them, where they could believe that they were worthy of the attention and the love of Jesus. And I believe in your life, there, are, there might be mountains that need to get knocked down. Maybe some pride needs to get leveled, but there's also valleys. And those valleys carry scars and memories and wounds. And the Lord says, I'm going to fill and level those valleys again so that they're a straight place, so there's those low places in your life. And guess what? Those low places in your life, that's where the water always runs. When it's rainy, the water always goes down to those places. You find that the issues you're dealing with, it always tends to collect in those low places, those hurt places, those wounded places. Yet he says, I'll fill those places up again so that there's no evidence that there ever was a valley there. So there's no evidence that there ever was a wound there. But I'll fill the space with myself, my presence, my healing power, so that the cracks and the broken places would be straight and level, so a way would be prepared for the Lord. Does anybody here want a way prepared for the Lord? I do. I want a way prepared in my heart for the Lord. I want a way prepared in the church for the Lord. Without honor, it doesn't work. Without allowing God to take control of our hearts and turn them where he wants them, it doesn't work. So if you're older, would you let the Lord turn your heart back to the younger? And if you're younger, would you let the Lord turn your hearts back to the older? So that there's no competition, but there's love and there's unity and there's honor. You honor that person for what they've been through and the fights they've won and the battles they've fought. You honor that person because you realize that God's put gifts in them that maybe aren't even coming yet, coming out yet. Maybe you haven't seen them yet, but you know that God created them for a purpose. So I honor what the Lord is doing in your life. I honor the grace on your life. And we honor God by honoring one another. And God is restoring what was broken, what was lost, what's been, what the culture has tried to divide and to wedge. God is restoring so that we be a people prepared for the Lord to use us, for the Lord to move amongst us, for his presence to be a very real thing in our life. Let's let him restore our hearts. Amen? Amen. Stand up with me.